Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite your attention to the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 3. We're studying verse by verse through Luke's Gospel. We come to a passage today, Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 20. And the title of the message is John's Humble Courage. John's Humble Courage. Every year, the Oxford English Dictionary adds a few new words, and they're usually taken from popular culture. For example, in 2014, one of the words that was added was the word humble brag. Have you heard of this word? It's a noun, an ostensibly modest or self-deprecating statement whose actual purpose is to draw attention to something of which one is proud. We most often see this on social media, but occasionally in the world at large. I can remember several years ago, I took a class down at the seminary and the guest lecturer was someone who's very famous in evangelical circles. And he was always late for class, every day. He would come in 10 or 15 minutes late. And, and so about the third day he comes in, this time nearly 20 minutes late. And he says, oh man, I apologize for being late, but when the White House calls, you have to take it. That's a humble brag. Well, as it relates to the passage before us, we could coin a new word as it relates to the life and ministry of John the Baptist. John was not a humble bragger, but he was humbly courageous. We don't tend to put those two characteristics together very often, but they mingle perfectly in the person of John, humility and courage. And even though John became a famous preacher, and even though probably thousands of people were going out to the desert to hear him and to be baptized by him, in fact, they began to wonder if he might be the Messiah, but he kept a level head and he passed the test of fame that so many people fail. He knew that all of this was not about him, but about Jesus. He was simply the forerunner, the messenger, not the Messiah. And at every opportunity, he made that confession. But that did not mean that he was a wallflower or a shrinking violet. He was willing to speak boldly to very powerful people, even when it cost him his freedom and ultimately his life. So let's read about this morning. Luke chapter 3, verse 15. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now this morning... I'm going to point out three truths from the text. Number one, the messenger's role. Number two, the Savior's baptism. And finally, the king's response. Verse 15 gives us the messenger's role. Look what John says. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts. 
And so the people being the people that were coming out to be baptized by John, they were at a state of emotional readiness, a state of expectation. What were they expecting? They were expecting salvation. They were expecting deliverance. Presumably, they were looking in their lifetime for the fulfillment of the prophetic promise that a Savior, a Messiah, would come into the world. And they were excited about the possibility that maybe John was he. Now, the reason they so desperately wanted salvation is because they felt oppressed in a couple of ways. First of all, and most obviously, they were oppressed by the Romans. They wanted a Savior to come and overthrow the Romans to reduce their taxes and to be able to rightly call themselves a free and independent nation. But they were also burdened religiously by the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees were those uh, group of Jewish leaders who were meticulous keepers of the law and made comments about the law and the people were taught by the Pharisees. One of the things that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for is that they kept adding heavier and heavier burdens to the people. For example, God gave a very simple commandment in, in the Ten Commandments about observance of a day of rest. Remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. But to that simple commandment, the Pharisees had added all sorts of cumbersome burdens. You can't do this and you can't do that to the point that people no longer looked forward to the Sabbath. And so when Jesus came along, He reminded them that the Sabbath was made for man. It was a gift from God, a day of rest to the people. And so the people, of course, loved Jesus for that. Now, John's appearance on the scene gave them hope caused them to wonder, could they live to see the Messiah? In fact, it became very widespread that John was the Messiah, so much so that the Pharisees sent out some spies to see if it was so. We read about that in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 19. This is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, who then are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now John could have easily used his fame to manipulate the people and the situation for self-enrichment. John doesn't seem to be a man who was moved too much by riches his clothing was homemade and his diet consisted of locust and wild honey. He could not be bought, although he could have used his position, he did not. Yet there have been evil men in every generation, including this one that we live in, that do manipulate desperate people for their own ends. The sick, the poor, the ignorant, the desperate are easy prey for religious charlatans. And they will have to answer to God one day, those charlatans for harming one of Jesus' little ones. But John did not fall victim to fame, as so many do. When people asked, are you the Christ? He denied it every time. He knew his role. He was the messenger, not the Messiah. He confessed often the superiority of the Savior. In fact, he said, I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. You know that dealing with people's feet was the job of the lowliest servant in a household. Jesus used this to great effect. Remember the night of His arrest where He gathered in the upper room with His disciples to celebrate Passover. So they were sitting around the table having that first cup. 
Scripture says they were arguing among themselves about a certain topic, which seemed to be a favorite topic that they argued about all the time, which was which one of them was the greatest. And as they were arguing about who was the greatest, Jesus, their creator, quietly got up from the table and filled a basin of water and began going around each one of them washing their feet, showing what kind of humility that is required of all of us. But John said of himself, I'm not worthy to be that lowest servant. That's how superior Christ was to him in his mind. John says, as for me, speaking of himself, I baptize with water. The word John recognized the limits of his own ministry. And every faithful preacher or prophet recognizes their own limits. Probably the greatest preacher in the New Testament was the Apostle Paul. And yet he confessed this. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the increase, right? We are just bit players and Christ is the star. He simply helps people see, that is the prophet, their need of a savior. He cannot save. Now almost every Monday morning, I have for years, had a conference call with a group of my three closest pastor friends. We all grew up in a little rural area of Mississippi and we've stayed friends through the years. In God's sovereignty, he has all four of us now in the four different time zones of the continental United States. <laughs> but we, we get together often and, and talk on the phone or text. And when we get together, we like to uh, get each other's goats, so to speak. And one of the ways I, I like to jab them with a sharp stick is in the middle of their conversation we'll be talking about what happened at our church Sunday and I'll say well how many people did y'all save yesterday and they know what I mean by that because uh, they are faithful men and preachers and they'll say we didn't save anybody we can't save anybody we sing today about one who can only Jesus saves right it is our job to tell others that he saves but we can't save anyone and that leads us to our second point, the Savior's baptism. The Savior, of course, being Jesus. John said that his baptism, the one that people were coming out to the Jordan to experience, was a baptism of water. Now, we are a Baptist church. We put it right there on our sign, don't we? And that tells people that we practice what's called believer's baptism. That we don't believe the water is salvific. That is, it is a sign and a symbol of salvation. We baptize those who for themselves make a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. We believe that's how John did it and we believe that that's how all true churches have done it down through the ages. But baptism is a sign. I point this out to everyone I baptize, particularly to younger people. I want them to know without a doubt there's nothing magic about that water. I'll say it's water just like at your house, right? But the significant, significance of it is what it symbolizes. Now, you know a symbol is something that points to something else, right? And, and so I, I like to use the example of this thing I wear on my finger here. Uh, it's a wedding ring, right? And if you've never met me before, but you saw I was wearing this gold man, you would know instantly something about me. It's a symbol that says, I'm married. Now, if I take my ring off and put it in my pocket, am I still married? Sure, but you wouldn't know it unless you knew a lot about me. That's why I wear my ring. Now, I have to confess to you, I'd be careful about taking this off because I tend to lose things. This is actually my third wedding ring. <laughs> I've only been married once. I've had three wedding rings. 
Last summer, we took our vacation up in Montana, and I was fly fishing in the Big Hole River, and uh, as I cast my line, I suppose I also cast my ring into the Blue Hole River. And I didn't wear a ring here for six months because I had to wait till Christmas for Santa Claus to bring me another one. <laughs> I did have a few sweet ladies in my church pull me aside and say, is there something wrong in your marriage? We notice you're not wearing your wedding ring. But if you're saved and you've not been baptized, there is something wrong in your relationship. Baptism does not say, but it does not mean it's not important, right? To be obedient to the Lord, we need to be obedient in all things, including His commandment to be baptized. And so John was out there baptizing with water, and yet he knew that baptism was inferior to the one that the Savior would bring. He says He will come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And what does it mean that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire? You know that the word baptize, baptizo in the Greek, means to fully immerse, to engulf, to inundate. And so use those words and say Jesus is coming to fully engulf, inundate, fill with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's simply referring here to the new covenant promises of the Old Testament prophets. Remember John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And like Jeremiah and Ezekiel before him, he said there's coming a new covenant that God is gonna make with his people. For example, Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And one of the signs of the new covenant's coming is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, 24, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from the lands and bring you into your own land. Now hear this, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit, capital S, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That is the promise of the Old Testament. That one day God will make a new covenant and the sign of that new covenant will be the indwelling and infilling of the Holy Spirit. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that John refers to. Now John recognized and confessed that he did not have the power to save. But he also recognized that he did not have the power to send the Holy Spirit. Only God did. And the other thing that only God can do is judge sinners. He does and he will. This is the second baptism, the baptism of fire he refers to. I take it very literally. He speaks of the fire of judgment. The reason I take that early is because that's how John comments on it in verse 17. Look at it. He says, the winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He speaks of Jesus coming as a judge. Now, a winnowing fork doesn't mean a lot to us today, but in the ancient world, it was an essential implement of agriculture. When they would harvest the grain, they would take it and 
put it together in sheaves. And then they would dry it out on these threshing floors and they would crush it to separate the grain from the stalk. And then the final step after it had dried would be to take this great big shovel slash pitchfork and they would throw the grain into the air and the breeze would take the worthless part, the chaff or the husk away and the heavier grain, which was good, would fall back to the earth. And if you did this a number of times, finally you had the separation of the grain from the husk, the good from the bad. And he says that what Christ is going to do is he's going to separate the saved from the lost and he's going to gather the grain representative of the saved into the barn. I believe that to be heaven. And the chaff, the lost, are going to be cast into the fire. I take that to be hell. Now there's a number of ways that Jesus expresses this in the New Testament, but it always ends up the same way. There's only two groups of people in the world, the lost and the saved, right? He calls them in one of his parables, the sheep and the goats. And he says in the day of judgment, the sheep are going to be separated from the goats. He talks about the world being a vast field of grain and there are tares, weeds, growing right alongside the wheat. And it's not our job to tell who's a wheat or a tear, right? That's the Lord's job. But one day he will separate, won't he? He'll separate the wheat from the tares. He'll separate the grain from the chaff. He'll separate the sheep from the goats. In other words, he'll separate the redeemed from the unredeemed. And which category are you in, dear friend? Have you been saved? Have you received the free gift of eternal life through the grace of Christ by placing your faith in Christ alone? The scripture says there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved than the name of Jesus. This is the message of John. He's coming to baptize. He'll baptize believers with the Holy Spirit. He'll baptize unbelievers with the fire of hell. Now thirdly, there is the king's response. Verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he, John, preached the gospel to the people. I love that word gospel. It means a good news message. It's really a technical term. Remember, John viewed himself as a forerunner of the king. The forerunner went before the king and told the constituents to get ready, right? Smooth out the roads, prepare yourself for the king's arrival. John's job was to tell the people to prepare their hearts and minds to receive their Messiah. And yet, not everyone did. The scripture says, to those who reject the message, the gospel is a stench, it's, it's an odor. But to those who are being saved is the power of God unto salvation. It's the same message. Some receive it and some reject it. It's always been that way. There's an example in verse 19 of one who rejected it. Verse 19 says, but when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias his brother's wife and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all, he locked up John in prison. When I'm talking about the king's response, I'm talking about Herod. You remember that Herod the Great, who by this time is dead, when he passed off the scene, his kingdom was divided among his three sons, one of which was so terrible, the Roman emperor had him sent away and gave his territory to a Roman governor. But at two sons, 
Herod, Antipas being one of them, is mentioned here. And he ruled over a certain part of the world. And they viewed him as a king of that area. He was a very powerful person. And yet John the Baptist preached to him as if he was anyone else. Did you know what Paul says about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? He says, look around you, speaking to Christians, as Paul took a survey of the church role there in Corinth, he said, there aren't many wise, there aren't many noble, and there aren't many mighty here. <laughs> that was not a compliment, by the way. He was saying, we're just common folks. And yet, that has been the MO of God since the day of Pentecost. There are not many celebrities. There are not many famous people. There are not many of the academically elite who named the name of Christ. I remember years ago I was in a conference over in uh, the valley of uh, Southern California. And the valley is separated by the Hollywood Hills from Hollywood. And we were literally just over the ridge at the church I was attending this conference in from uh, the Hollywood sign. And this conference that I go to every year, just about every year, happens the first week of March every year, which also coincides with the Oscar Awards there in Hollywood. And so one night, uh, one of my favorite preachers was uh, preaching on 1 Corinthians 1, how there aren't many wise and not many noble or many mighty that God has chosen. And as he was preaching, we could hear the helicopters buzzing over the church, heading to Hollywood, full of paparazzi to take the picture of the beautiful people as they were getting out of their limousines going into the award ceremonies. And as he was laboring to make the point that not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty are in the church, he says, what I mean is this, men, when we say the amen tonight and we dismiss, there's nobody going to jump out of the bushes and take your picture. <laughs> Those helicopters are not for us, Right? And John understood this, and yet the Bible doesn't say that no mighty, no noble, no wise. He said, not many. And so John preached the same message to the king as he preached for everyone else. In fact, the scripture says John reprimanded Herod. That is, he called him on his sin. Now, now we Christians have a sort of tenuous and fragile relationship with the government, Right? Because on one hand, Paul and Peter say that we should pray for the governors and kings and all those who have authority over us. And we should be submissive to the laws of the land. After all, Jesus paid his taxes, right? We should be good citizens. And at the same time, we, we don't need to obligate ourselves to the government to the point that we're no longer able to speak the truth to them for fear of what they might do to us. And I'll get real personal with you. I'm a little nervous when I see some of our Southern Baptist leaders cozying up so closely to the government right now. And I'm glad that they're invited and, and maybe they have a voice in this administration. But listen, we need to stay at arm's length so that when we need to talk about sin, we can talk about sin. And pray for our nation, pray for our president, pray for our leaders, but we need prophets. And throughout the Bible, you see this. I, I'm thinking of Moses who went up to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. I'm thinking of the prophet Nathan, who came into the inner chambers of King David and pointed his finger in his face and said, thou art the man. I'm thinking of Elijah, 
when he was confronted by Ahab who said, who is this, O troubler of Israel? And he said, I'm not the troubler of Israel, you are. The Bible says of King Ahab, he was more wicked than all of his fathers. And if you know the history of Israel, that's a mouthful. He was wicked. Elijah called him on it. Now we have the last Old Testament prophet, John, and he goes to Herod and says, you're, you're a sinner. And he got real specific. The other gospels tell us in some more detail, but Herod, who was well known, was a womanizer. Been married many times. He'd put away one wife and marry another. He went to visit his half-brother Philip one year. And there he met Philip's beautiful young wife and fell in love with her, so he said. Told her that, that he would give her his entire kingdom if she would just leave Philip and marry him. And she took him at his word. She left Philip and married Herod. Well, in the meantime, he had to put away his wife. And they come back and... Here they are ruling over God's people with this known sin over them. And John says, it ought not to be. If you know anything about preaching the gospel, not everybody wants to hear it, right? <laughs> and Herod didn't want to hear it. In fact, he wanted to silence John. And he put him in prison. To all the other wicked things he did, he added this. He had John thrown in prison. Now Luke does not tell us the rest of the story, but uh, the other gospel writers do. You know that while John was in prison, Herod threw a drunken party. And Herodias' daughter came out and performed a very seductive dance. And Herod, in his inebriated state, thought it was grand. And he, to impress his friends, told her in front of them, I will reward you for this dance with anything you want, just name it. And compelled by her mother, who hated John the Baptist, she said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Herod was put between the rock and the hard place. If he backed down, he would look foolish in front of his friends. But if he did it, he knew that uh, in some way he would be striking down a man of God. But he did it. John was killed and his life cut short. And his ministry, compared to so many, was very short. But here's what John the Baptist knew. And I want every young person in this room to hear this. John knew that the measure of a man's life is measured not by its length, but by its depth. And John had a deep life. For, for the few years that he was on the scene, he preached the truth and led many to saving faith in Jesus and, and may his tribe increase. John was locked up for the gospel. And we may live to see a day when some in this room are. May we be as faithful as him. Jesus warned us, right? He told his disciples that a servant's not better than his master. We know how they treated Jesus and how his life ended violently. Don't be shocked if that were to happen here. Paul told the young pastor Timothy that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus can expect persecution. Don't be shocked. John wasn't. I'm sure that John, had he cooled it around Herod and Herodias, could have lived a longer life. If he had given way to political expediency, he could have spared his neck, but he did not, he would not. The title of this message is Humble Courage. Here's what John knew and what his life exemplifies. True humility demands that God's plan is not dependent on our presence. 
Let me say it again. True humility demands that God's plan is not dependent on our presence. Meaning, none of us, he can't do without, right? God doesn't need any of us, especially your pastor. Whatever God decrees is going to happen, amen? Whether we're there to see it or not. Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected even though John didn't live to see it. And if God wants to use this church for great things, he can do it with or without any of us, right? And yet we get this great privilege of living in this moment, of being able to say, Lord, here am I, send me. Use me in, in any way that you please. True humility that John had demanded that he didn't have to be there for it to happen. So I read that this week, it reminded me of a quote from a man by the name of Count Zinzendorf. Remember I said there weren't many from nobility that were saved? Well, there was some, and Count Zinzendorf was one. He, he was a, a man who lived in Europe, who uh, was born into a noble family. He was wealthy, but he used his wealth and his position not for self-enrichment, but to, to share the gospel, to send missionaries out all over the known world then. And this is what Count Zinzendorf said about our task as Christians. He said, quote, the missionary must seek nothing for himself, no seat of honor, no report of fame. Like the cab horses in London, he must wear blinkers and be blind to every danger and to every snare and conceit. He must be content to suffer, to die, and be forgotten, end quote. John the Baptist was content to suffer, to die, and as far as he knew, to be forgotten. And the reason we know that is because probably the quote of John the Baptist that we know more than any other is this very simple phrase. Speaking of Jesus, John said, he must increase and I must what? Decrease. John knew his role. Do you know your role in the world? First thing is that your role is to bow your knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If you've never done that before, I don't know of a better day than today to recognize your need of a Savior. Just like Herod, just like those soldiers who came out to hear John preach, just like the Pharisees, just like the, the common man on the street, all of us have the great need of forgiveness. Well, the wonderful gospel is this, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, not just a symbolic baptism of water, but a baptism of the Holy Spirit where he does radical heart surgery and he removes that heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh and fills us with his own spirit. What about you? Do you have the Spirit of God living within you? If you're saved, you do. The Bible says if you have not the Spirit of God, you're none of His. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not saved. I invite you today, here and now, right where you are, if you've never done so, to bow to the Lordship of Jesus. Confess your sins before Him. Repent of those sins. Turn from them and turn towards Christ. You must decrease. He must increase. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, and I thank you specifically for the example of John the Baptist. Lord, we need more men and women like him who were humble. Lord, he knew that he couldn't save and he couldn't sanctify, but he could preach. He could tell about Jesus, and so he did till his dying breath. Father, like John, we're not to pick and choose and cherry pick who we evangelize, but we're to go and take the gospel to all nations, including the down and out and the up and in, the rich, the poor, the ignorant, the educated. This is good news for all who will receive it. Father, I pray if there's even one in this room today who has never professed Christ as Lord and Savior, received his free gift, that today would be the day. Would you do it for your own namesake, for your own glory? I pray it in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.